We'll turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of John. And we'll be in John chapter 9 this morning. You know, as we've been working our our way through the book of John, you kind of need to understand the heart of John's gospel. John tells us why he is writing this gospel, why he wrote the book of John. And the way John writes his his gospel, he puts the, the reason for writing it at the end of the book. So in John chapter 20, verse 31, John writes this. He says, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That is the purpose for the book of John. He, he wrote it so that when a reader comes and reads the text of the book of John, they're captured by the truth that Jesus truly is not only the Son of God, but God the Son. He came and He lived that perfect life. He came and He died on the cross for our sin, and He rose again. He truly is the Messiah that had been prophesied about. And so when you think about the ministry of Jesus, I hope you understand, when Jesus did miracles, there's only a few of them that are actually in the Word. I read some accounts where most feel that Jesus did thousands of miracles. He was constantly healing and casting out demons and bringing the glory of God wherever He went. And so when one of the writers puts a particular miracle within the text, there's a reason for it. The Holy Spirit speaking through that writer, particularly John here. And so this morning, we're going to see the miracle of a blind man who was blind from birth. He's going to be healed. And there's a reason that that John, through the work of the Holy Spirit, put it here in the book of John because I think it's such a beautiful picture of the gospel. It's a parallel, if you will, of the work of God to save a sinner, how God takes a man who's blind physically, he can't see, the same way he takes a, a person who's blind spiritually and they can't see things spiritually, and how it is God who gets the glory and He brings sight, both physical and spiritual. And we'll see that here in the text this morning. So we're going to start with verses 1 through 3. Let's read that. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3 says, As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? And Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So this morning, what must take place for a person to be spiritually healed? Or you could say, be given spiritual side, or you could say, be born again, or you could say, be saved. What has to take place, first thing? The sinner must recognize their need. The first thing that must take place is the sinner must recognize their need. And what happens in the way that the gospel work is, God's Holy Spirit creates divine appointments, opportunities for the gospel to be brought in. And He does a prep work on the heart. He, he, he goes before us. He calls us to share. But trust me, if you're willing to go out and preach the gospel, there are some that the Holy Spirit has already prepared, and they will hear and respond to the truth. Now, it begins here in verse 1. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man born blind from birth. Now, he, of course, is Jesus. And if you remember last week in John chapter 8, Jesus had had this kind of confronted meeting with these religious leaders in the temple. And if you remember, Jesus 
had told him in John 8, 58. He said, before Abraham was born, I am. He made that statement that I am God before them. We know that that's, they understood that because they picked up stones to stone him, and then Jesus kind of disappears from within their midst. And I don't know if he just kind of worked his way in the crowd or if there was some supernatural disappearing. But then Jesus is leaving the temple, and he goes out of the temple, and all of a sudden he runs into this blind man. Now, we know that this blind man was a beggar because verse 8 is going to tell us that he was a beggar. And if you think about it, in the temple setting, what a perfect place to be as a beggar. Because the people are coming and going from the temple, and most people are going to the temple because of the sacrificial system. So they're going there with alms to give, and they're going there feeling guilty of their sin. And this guy says, wow, this is the greatest place to be. People are already guilty. They got money. So you had a lot of beggars that would kind of hang around the outskirts of the temple And as Jesus is departing from the temple, Jesus stops. Guys, it's not a coincidence. There's nothing that Jesus did that is a coincidence. This is a divine appointment. Just like with the woman at the well in Samaria, this is the same thing here. Whatever Jesus does, He does with a purpose. Now think about it. These men just tried to kill Him. He should be running, but instead He stops. You see the compassion and the love of God right here as he stops for this blind man. And by God's sovereign will and by God's divine leading, Jesus is going to to bring this man to spiritual sight. He's going to do a divine healing, a supernatural work, and, and make this man who was blind see. Remember when when Jesus first began his ministry. He went back to his hometown, Nazareth, and he went there and he went into the synagogue and he stood up and he took the scroll of Isaiah and he read from that scroll and from that scroll, it it gives a picture of what the Messiah will do. Let me read that for you. Luke chapter 4 verses 18 through 21 says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim the release to the captives and to recovery of sight to the blind, there it is, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And the eyes of all of the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And we need to understand that The rabbis in that day, they taught that the Messiah who would come, that he would be able to do three things. First, he'd be able to cast out demons from a man that was mute. Now, there was a teaching that was going around that you could cast out a demon from somebody that could speak because if you could get the person to say the name of the demon, then you could exercise out the demon. But no one could cast out the demon from a man that was mute, but Jesus did. Not only that, second thing, they also taught that the Messiah could heal leprosy. We know that Jesus healed leprosy in Matthew 8, Mark 1, Luke 5. And also, the rabbis taught that the Messiah would heal a blind man, and particularly a blind man that's born in blindness. There's no way that they could say that this miracle is medicinal. No, it's congenital. This man cannot see from birth. And the healing of this blind man, it's, it's interesting, this is not something new. Jesus had healed a blind man in Mark chapter 8. He had healed the blind man by the name of Bartimaeus in in Mark chapter 10. He healed two blind men in Matthew chapter 9. So why does John use another blind man? 
He wants to show the gospel. Because this is such a perfect picture of what it means for a sinner who's lost in the darkness of sin, unable to understand, unable to see it, unable to know Christ, how God works in that life to bring them to faith. You need to understand, first of all, that every person ever born is born spiritually blind, depraved, totally without hope, without God. And this blind man is a picture of that lost sinner without Christ. He's that perfect analogy of a person with no capacity to see Jesus. He's profoundly engulfed in sin without Christ. And those without Christ, they are spiritually blind. Now, this blindness, it, it illustrates this man's sinful condition. The, the, the teaching in that day, they taught that if a person was blind, that meant that they were sinful. That's why they were blind. And such a perfect picture of, of the natural man, the person without Christ. I, I always use this kind of in joking that I never had to teach my kids to be bad, but I had to help them to understand what goodness is. Why is that? Because they're naturally little sinners, it's a sin nature. And those without Christ, the Bible says that they're destitute. As a matter of fact, Ephesians chapter 2 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. Romans 3.10 and 11 says that there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. And, you, and Jesus had just come from speaking to these lost religious sinners and now he's here before this blind man, the perfect picture of a sinner, unable to see. And he takes the initiative just like God has to take the initiative. Let's be honest. You and I weren't seeking God. He sought us first. And this is such the picture. Jesus comes, and although he's physically blind, physically destitute, God comes in. He's going to become a testimony of who Jesus is that He's the only way to the Father. But the disciples, they ask a question. Look at verse 2. The disciples say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now, we need to understand that God will often use difficulty to draw the sinner. Can I tell you, as a pastor, this is how it works. Almost every time that I've met somebody who's seeking Jesus, something's going on in their life some kind of tragedy, some kind of difficulty, some kind of either physical issue, some kind of financial issue, some kind of relational issue where they were never open before, suddenly God has their attention. And, and what the Holy Spirit does, and God allows difficulty, can I tell you straight out, pain in people's life. Why? To draw them, to prepare them, to open them to the truth. Because what happens is the natural man, there's like a veil over the truth. They, they cannot see it. Their heart is hard. As, as a matter of fact, when the Scriptures speak about, particularly those that were religious in Israel, it always speaks about them as blind. If you look at 2 Corinthians 3, 14, it'll be on the screen, verses 16, it says, but their minds were hardened, for until this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So how does a sinner begin to turn to the Lord? Can I tell you, God prepares them by difficulty, 
by pain. And so you would think that these disciples would have compassion. The Lord has compassion on this man. But the disciples don't really have compassion here. They see him as kind of a subject of theological discussion. They just begin this conversation. Well, hey, yeah, this guy's blindness. What's, what's the sin? No compassion. But this man is such a, a perfect picture of the sinner. And Jesus disagrees with him. Now, we know that sin, the sin nature, we all inherited that from Adam and Eve, the very first sinners. And all of us have inherited that sin nature. And because of sin, suffering came into this world. But we cannot say theologically that a person is disabled or blind because of sin. We don't have that ability. Only God knows why. But they used to teach it back then. But only God can take difficult circumstances. And sometimes God will use these circumstances in such a way that He'll even use it for His glory. And the Jews in that day, they taught that blindness and deformity was caused by sin. And their theological system, they taught if a person was deformed, if a person was diseased, if they had some kind of illness, it was because they had committed some kind of sin or that their parents had committed some kind of sin and they were going to have to atone for their parents' sin. And the reason they taught that is they had a misunderstanding of the book of Exodus. Chapter 20, verses 4 and 5. On the screen it says, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations to those who hate me. First, we need to understand what this is. This is known as a collective statement. And when he uses the word fathers there, he's not speaking about parents and their children. He's talking about the leaders of Israel, the fathers of the nation. And when the fathers of the nation sin, it brings the people to sin, and often it takes three and four generations to get them out of that cycle of sin. We see it when we read the Old Testament. You see these different kings that fall into sin and begin to worship idols and how long it takes for them to turn. That's what they're speaking about here. That's the principle that's established here. It's not saying that an individual sin by a parent is then transferred to the child. Don't ever say that to someone because it's wrong. There's not a curse that someone is cursed with. And also we know that if there was, Jesus took the curse upon himself anyway on the cross. God is not putting the sin of a parent on a child. You you don't have to worry about your children for what you've done in the past, then your grandkids and then your great-grandkids. Although, let me say this, careful, there are consequences to your sin. And your sin can cause great harm and dishonor to the Lord and to your family. And then we also know that the Bible teaches, in the New Testament particularly, that there is a sin unto death. In the book of 1 Corinthians, it talks about that there are these believers, Christians, that were coming to what's known as the love feast. And at the love feast, they were hammering down wine. They were getting drunk at the communion table, dishonoring the Lord. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, he says that some became sick and some even died because of that sin. So be careful. But Jesus wants to correct their thinking about this man. And we know that certainly this man was a sinner and also his parents were sinners. But that's not why he's blind. And Jesus shares with them why. Look at verse 3. He says, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God 
might be displayed in him. God's going to use this man's infirmity for his glory. Now, there's a debate whether or not God caused his blindness or he allowed his blindness, but God's going to use his blindness for glory's sake. And sometimes God will use the storms of life, the difficulties in our life, for his own glory. But he, he doesn't, you know, I was thinking about Job, and remember how Job's friends kept trying to put sin on him and the pain they caused him when it wasn't his sin? God allowed that to happen in Job's life for his glory. And sometimes God will allow that. And so the, the question we have to answer is, why will God allow suffering in, in the lives of his people? Now, we can answer why God allows suffering in the unbeliever. What he does is he uses it to draw, right? Right? He uses suffering in those that don't know Christ as a means of causing them to wake up to their need. How about for the believer, though? Why suffering for the believer? I think there's three things. The first thing that we can see in Scripture, why God allows suffering in the believer, His children, is for correction. It's to correct His people. I got to tell you, I don't know about if it's true for you, but it's very true for me. My heart wants to wander. I'm prone to wander. And, and when we wander, the Lord wants to bring us back into fellowship with Him. And it's a, He's a good shepherd. He wants to bring you back. And the best way and the most common way that He's used in my life and probably in your life is difficulty. He corrects us. When I start to wander away, boom, something happens. It's kind of like spanking with a child. Boy, you even say that anymore in our culture and people go, whoa, spanking. But can I tell you something as a parent? Sometimes it's so effective and the most loving thing that you can do is to spank your child because it's the quickest and, and, and fastest way for correction to, to realign, realign their thinking and then afterwards and they're crying, you hug them and you tell them how much you love them and it's over, it's done. You move on. And sometimes the Lord, He needs to bring a spanking into our life and He'll correct us sometimes with suffering and in pain and things that are difficult and we can't always figure it out. And, and that's the question for you. Sometimes if there's an issue in your life, maybe it's corrective. Maybe you're drinking to drunkenness. Maybe you're smoking dope and getting high. Maybe you're treating your, your family in such a way that dis that's dishonoring the Lord. Maybe you're embezzling money from your work. Maybe you're looking at something online that you should not be looking at. Whatever it is, maybe the Lord's trying to get your attention. Wake up correction. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 7 and verse 11 puts it like this. It says, have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? All discipline for a moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. A loving father disciplining his children. Correction. The second thing that God uses is not only to correct us, but it's constructive. It's to mold us. It's to help us grow up. It's to mature us. And again, I can just tell you as as I've been walking with the Lord now 27 years. When I'm hurting, guess where I run? To daddy. <laughs> Lord, I'm hurting. 
And God often uses the difficult things in life to draw us back to center with Christ. I find I pray more. I seek Him more closely. I'm, I'm, I'm fellowshipping more with His people. I'm more into His Word often when I'm suffering. And so God uses those most difficult times, and sometimes they can be the sweetest times as a means to be constructive, to, to grow us up, to mature us in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18 puts it like this. It says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but through, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. God's doing an eternal work in you. It's to help us, to mold us, to shape us. Sometimes I wander and I need to be corrected. Other times I need to be drawn close and he brings constructive work. But the third way is what we see here. It's for God's glory. Sometimes God will work in a way, in a person's life, in such a way that it will glorify our Father in heaven. And that's what we see with this blind man. And we've seen it with other people in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Job is a picture of a man that God used for his glory. And also is Lazarus, Jesus' good friend. Both of those, when you read the text, and, and I'm sure they were sinners and, and they had the, the idea of the constructive, you know, uh, work and the corrective work, but when you read about them in the Scripture, it was for the glory of God. You see that in the book of Job in John chapter 11. Commentator James M Montgomery Voice, he put it like this, he said, in Job's case, glory was given to demonstrate, and it was observed by Satan and all the angels that Job did not love the Lord for what he could get out of him, but because the Lord was worthy to be loved and obeyed. This was true regardless of what happened to Job personally, and ultimately, Job was vindicated and received his reward. And God allowed Lazarus, Jesus' best friend, to die, bringing suffering not only upon himself, but also upon his sisters and those who mourned for him. And God permitted a man to be struck with total blindness throughout the better part of his life, so that in God's own time that he might become the object of a miracle performed by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Sometimes God will use suffering for His glory. The first one's corrective, the second one's constructive. And then here, verse 3 says, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in Him. Now, Jesus was sent by this man, by the Father, so that He would receive glory and that the Father would be glorified. And, and what happens is, is, is God's always working on the heart of people. We can't always see that work but I can tell you, we even saw it here in the first service. Someone was brought here and they were broken. And they now know Christ. It was a difficult thing in their life. But God worked out the details. And He does that work. And I, I think each of you are like me. I, I saw it in my life. I was brought low so I could look up. My heart was closed. But He used pain so that it would open up to Christ. And we know this is going to happen to this man. In John chapter 9, verse 38, it says, He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. This man is going to come to faith. He, he needs physical healing, but much more, he needs spiritual healing. And the Lord is going to do this great work in this man. And this man knows that he's a sinner. 
He's been told his whole life he's a sinner. He says, you're blind because you're a sinner, and he believes it. And so God, by his grace, brings the Son of God across his path. And he's done that with each one of us that know Jesus. He prepared the heart. He brought the truth and allowed us to receive it. As a pastor for the past 11 years, I can tell you time and time again, I see this truth. I've seen it in this church countless number of times that it is through the difficult moments that God speaks the loudest. And I was reading this Facebook page of a pastor, and he was, all these Facebook friends responded, and I wanted you to see some of the responses. Here's the question. I stopped running from God when? Look at the responses on the screen. One person said, it became clear that I had made a mess of things. Another person said, I hit bottom. One woman said, she filed for divorce. I mean, a man said, she filed for divorce. Another said, I heard myself say the words that I'm an alcoholic. Another person said, people found out my secret. One woman said, the pregnancy test came back positive. Another said, I woke up in a hospital after an overdose. I was in the back of a police car. That was a wake-up moment. I was fired for embezzlement. I had nowhere else to go. And each of us could insert our own, couldn't we? As God works, He prepares the heart, usually through pain, usually through difficulty. And we, the sinner, we have to recognize our need. That's the first thing we see. You have to recognize your need. There's a second thing. The second thing is that the gospel truth must be offered with grace and power. So what must take place for for a person to be spiritually healed, to be saved? The gospel truth must be offered with grace and with power. Look at verses 4 through 7. It says, We must work the works of Him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and he made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so they went away and washed and came back seen. Now, Jesus begins right here. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. So God chooses this man to use his difficulty to bring glory. But he, Jesus, he, he kind of enters this, this truth, this idea about working, this idea about doing God's work as a priority. And the idea is this. The disciples had their focus in the wrong place. They're looking back. Hey, what happened to this man? Jesus says, don't do that. Look forward. What is God going to do? And guys, this is a great word for us. And, and I want you to see a word that's very important. It's key in this section. Look at verse 4. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it's day. That we is not only the disciples, but it's all of us here that know Jesus. We are called to do his work, to do the work of Christ. We are called by him to be faithful. And Jesus already said in John 5, 17, my father is working until now and I myself am working. And what he does is he uses these contrasts of, of daytime and nighttime, of darkness and light. And the reason is if you understand that culture, they didn't have electricity. And so all they had were lamps or candles. And so most people did all their work during the day because it's very difficult to see with just candlelight. And so most work was always done during the day. And then when night comes, what do you do? You rest. 
And so Jesus is using this as an analogy for, for his disciples to understand that the time is short. There's a sense of urgency here. Do you see it? He, he, he's saying, hey, look, be ready. And everything we do, we need to do to the glory of God, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 10.31. And not just any work, the work of God. And that means that the work of God doesn't necessarily mean you need to quit your jobs and join a church. No, what he's saying here is whatever you do, however you do it, whether it's at your job or with your family or with your friends, it is, that's, that's first. It is the work of God that is first. And this is a call to his disciples. It is a call to us as his disciples to do the work while there's day. Now, in the context here, of course, Jesus knew he's going to die in six months and, and darkness is going to be upon the land. He'll be in the grave. But then he's going to resurrect and they're going to be given the Holy Spirit. And then, boy, do they go to work, right? The book of Acts. We have the church established. And that work is still happening today with you and I. Paul said this in Colossians 4 or 5. He says, conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsider, making the most of the opportunity. Paul said in Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise but wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. And God calls us to work, to do the work of the gospel. Wherever he has you, however you're, you're living, he wants that to be done. And then Jesus does a shift, and Jesus does a shift here to say, not only that, but I'm divine. I am God. And if you look at verse 5, now this is to his disciples. He says, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, he, he's talking to a blind man who's in darkness, and then he makes this statement right before he's going to heal him. Hey, by the way, I'm, I am the light of the world. Now, remember, he had already said this in John chapter 8. And he made the statement that I am the light of the world because that was a, a picture in John chapter 8, verse 12, of the wilderness wanderings. Let's take a look at that, and I'll read that for you. It says, then Jesus spoke again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. That was the lighting ceremony that took place in the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booze. And they had these gigantic candelabras, and Jesus is standing right in the middle of them. And as they're lit, they literally gave light off, and Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. And so he reminds his disciples again. And remember, that's a picture of God as fire by night and cloud by day. Jesus making that statement saying, I am God, the light of the world. And then he goes right here and he heals this man. But I want to tell you something that you need to know. Jesus is the light of the world. We are also lights. As a matter of fact, Jesus taught this on the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 14 through 16. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We're to be about His work, and that work is the gospel work. And we're to be lights in our life. And the works that we do, loving others, serving others, telling others, this is the means of the gospel. And it's a draw. I can tell you that the, that the person that received Christ this morning was invited by a friend, and they were fighting. But that friend sent a card to her, gave her a card that basically said, are you okay? And that broke that fight. 
And then the invitation came. And then she was here this morning. And they were fighting because there was problems in that person's life. And then Jesus came in. That person that gave that card was a light. A true friend. Somebody who extended the gospel. And what Jesus does, look at verses 9 through 7. It says, when he said this, he spat on the ground. He made clay of spittle. He applied the clay to the eyes. And he said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he was sent away and washed and came back seeing. So Jesus anoints his eyes with clay. Again, such a beautiful picture of the gospel. Jesus comes in and, and brings a soothing ointment for the eyes, bringing healing to the eyes. Now, there's a lot of conjecture why he used clay mixed with spittle, but I think what it is to show it's another way to heal that only he can heal. Because when you look at all the other healings, he spoke it or whatever, but this is something unique. That's, that's because we want to always try to figure out a, a system, don't we? Well, I want to come up with a system that I can heal. But guys, this is pointing to him as God. And so he does it differently with this man, but it's a picture of one that was darkness, suddenly light, and the truth came in, and now he can see. The name sin is probably because it's talking about the, the water that was sent to the pool from the tunnel that was I, I, Hezekiah's tunnel from the spring of Gahon. And another picture of the gospel is this man obeys the truth. Think about how difficult it is for a blind guy. He's at the temple. The pool of Siloam is a half a mile away. And Jesus says, okay, I did all this stuff, now go. <laughs> You're blind. But he obeys. He doesn't fight back. He responds. Again, a picture of the beautiful work of God in a life, the beautiful work of Christ from ministering to the truth. And verse 7 says, he went away and washed, and he came back seeing this is how the gospel works. And by the way, the gospel, the gospel is where the power is. That's the truth of the word. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. First, the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So when that person's hurting, when that difficulties come in, when they've been prepared by God, what do you do? Bring the gospel. And the gospel, through the work of the Spirit, does the work. You know, I've lost count of how many opportunities God has given me. Sometimes I've responded to it. Other times I'm like, man, I missed that one. But I've been fortunate to see God work in, in different lives throughout this church as a pastor. One time God brought a man to my office who'd been having reoccurring nightmares for a, drink, for a year that he was killed in an auto accident. And he showed up to me like, what is going on? And instead of talking so much about the car accidents, I talked about the gospel. And maybe God's trying to get his attention and he received Christ. Another time... God brought a woman to my office, and her husband had been unfaithful to her, and her whole life was built around this man. And when he was taken out of the picture, suddenly she, her whole life just crumbled. And so I sh showed her how her identity was in him and not in Christ and helped her understand that the gospel, Jesus, wants her to know him. And she became a Christian. She attends this church now. Time and time again, another man lost a son. Suddenly, gone, so broken. But I didn't spend a lot of time talking about the son that was lost. I spent more time talking about him, how he was lost, and the Lord used that difficulty in his life. And that's the way God works. He, he allows the difficulties in our life. 
I didn't tell him you need counseling. I didn't tell him you need medication. I said, you need Jesus. And now they're walking in wholeness in him because the gospel has the power to save. Two things we see. The sinner must recognize their sin. The gospel truth must be offered with grace and with power. And here's the final one. When that happens, transformation and change will occur. Transformation and change will occur. When a person responds to the truth of the gospel, the message of Jesus, the power of God comes in and it changes the heart, it changes the life. Look at verses 8 through 12. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is it not this, the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes open? And he answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Salome and wash. And I went away and I washed and I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. The amazing thing here is, is that they kind of have this debate whether or not this person is really healed. Now understand, because he's a beggar and he's been going to the temple to the same place, he probably always goes to the same place because he's blind, he knows how to get there. Everybody kind of knows his story. The disciples already knew his story. Everybody kind of knows who this guy is, but he looks different. Now I don't know about you, but have you ever met somebody that you knew them before they knew Jesus and then after? how different they look. You know, there was a, uh, a man that used to come to this church and he was homeless. And he came for years. And then about a, about a year and a half ago, he received Jesus right up front. And then not quickly after that, within six months, he was reunited with his family, reunited to his wife, and then he moved away with him. But I gotta tell you, about six months ago, he came back and I'm telling you, he looked so, I didn't recognize him. I couldn't tell. He was so different. It's kind of a picture of what's happening here. This man comes back with joy. He can see. He doesn't need a cane. He's different. And that's what happens when a person responds to the gospel. They're changed. They're renewed. But there's this debate going on with all the people. Like, oh, he's not really him. And he's going, no, I'm him. Really? Really, it's me. They can't believe it's a miracle. Because a miracle... It's not natural, it's supernatural. And when a person receives Christ, it's not natural, it's supernatural. It's a work that's on the inner man. Now, the Pharisees, these religious leaders, and we're going to look at this next week, they won't believe that this man was truly healed. Matter of fact, they have to call this man's parents before they'll believe. John chapter 9, verse 18, it says, The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been born blind and they received, that he received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received the sight. But guys, the same thing happens to the person that's been converted to Jesus Christ. It's a miracle. And when that happens, real change takes place. And the Scripture speaks about it so clearly. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is, is in Christ, he is a new creation, new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Paul kind of gives a, a before and after in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. The before is, he says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit 
the kingdom of God. Look at verse 11. Such were, past tense, some of you. But you've been washed. But you were sanctified. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Change. Galatians 2.20 is my favorite. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And this life, I live in the body, I live by faith. And the Son of God who loved me, and died for me. Change. Transformation. And when a person receives Christ, they are changed. Different. And guys, the changes that take place, God wants you to be secure in them. God wants you to know that you know that you know that you are secure in Christ. John said in 1 John 5.13, these things have been written that you may know you have eternal life. That is the assurance of your salvation. And then when John wrote the whole book of 1 John, he lays out, there's 11, but I'm right, I'll give you guys 10 of them. 10 examples of what a Christian looks like, a believer, a person who's born again. I have them on the screen behind me. As I ask these questions, do you see this in you? Do you enjoy fellowship with God? 1 John 1, 3. Are you now sensitive to sin in your life? 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. Do you reject the world system? 1 John 2, 15. Do you love Jesus Christ and are you waiting for his return? 1 John 2, 18 through 25. Do you see a decreasing pattern of sin in your life? I talked about this last week. It's not that you're sinless, but you're sinning less. 1 John 2, 9 through 11 and 3, 11. Have you been rejected for your faith in Christ? 1 John 3, 13 through 15. Do you experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit, conviction, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness? 1 John 4, 13 through 15. Do you discern truth from error? I call that a flag. You ever heard something go, whoop, something's wrong with that. Why is that? Because you know the Word of God. And do you experience answered prayer? And I'm hoping you sat there and said, yep, yep, uh, yep, yep, yep. Right? None of us are perfect. God's doing our work. But these are proofs that you know Him. God wants you to know that. He wants you to have the assurance of your salvation. And then Jesus here these people can't believe, so they ask how it happened in verses 9 through 12. And they were saying to him, how then were your eyes open? And he answered, the man who was called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes, go to Siloam, wash it. I went away and washed and received sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Remember, he's blind. He's never seen Jesus. And the story kind of ends right here. But I want to end it in this way. This man was physically blind. He could not see that is such a clear picture of the person who does not have Christ. They are spiritually blind. They are dead in their sin. God had to make this man aware. He knew he was a sinner. God brought Jesus with the truth. Those of us that know Christ know exactly that that's us. We found that we were a sinner. We needed God's truth. And then when we heard that truth, we responded like this man did in obedience and faith. And then change came. Now, you might be brought by a friend like that woman that was here the first service. Many of you here I know know Jesus Christ. But there might be some of you here that don't. I want to give you an opportunity right now. If you're doubting 
if you're questioning your walk and, and your connection and your relationship with Jesus Christ, this is a moment for you. The offer is being extended. If you suddenly are aware of your own sin before a holy God, Jesus came and he died for you. His death on the cross pays the total account of your sin, and he offers it freely, but you must respond in faith. You must believe and repent. If that's you, I want to offer Jesus to you this morning right now, so I'd like us to bow our heads. And as I've gone through this message and shared the truth of of what it means to come into a living relationship with a living God through Jesus Christ. If you say, that's me, I, I want Jesus, pray this prayer. You can pray it to yourself, you can pray it out loud, however you'd like. Repeat after me. Heavenly Father, I know that I am a sinner. And I know that I have failed. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for giving me eternal life in you. Thank you for paying the price for my sin. I turn from my sin, I repent. And I turn to you, I put my trust in you alone. Help me, Lord Jesus, to live for you. Show me the way. Help me to walk. And I want to honor you with the rest of my life. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Can I please have you stand for the closing song?